College football season is back, and Walters is the place to be in D.C., be it the SEC, the ACC, the Big Ten, or whatever the heck we're calling the Big 12 right now. The 30-plus televisions at Walters have you covered. Make your reservations over at waltersdc.com slash reservations now. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, Nat Chat listeners, Tim Showers, producer of the podcast. Appreciate you all listening and downloading. Quick heads up before we get into today's episode. We had to go to the bullpen in the middle of the show for Mark's mic, so he's going to sound different in the first segment than he does starting at minute 18. Just a heads up there. Appreciate you again listening to the show and enjoy us recap the split doubleheader against the Mets on Saturday in D.C. Now the set. And the 2-1 swing and a high fly ball to deep right down the line. Soto looking up. And this one is gone. Goodbye. In and out of the second deck down the right field line above the Nationals bullpen. A two-run homer for Francisco Landor. They have regained the lead 11-9. And now Tim Bogars coming out. So that's going to be it for Rodgers. Two out of the sixth inning of a seven-inning game. With James McCann up next, he hands the baseball to Tim Bogart. And now they roll it towards the dugout. But listen to this hand for Josh Rogers coming off to the Nationals dugout on the first base side. His Nationals debut, he is getting a standing ovation. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, September 5th, 2021. Along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast, a long day of baseball on Saturday at Nationals Park, concludes with the end of a Nats seven-game losing streak. Nats splitting a doubleheader with the Mets, game one, an 11-9, nine-inning loss, despite the Nats incredibly overcoming a 9 nothing fourth-inning deficit. Game two, a 4-3 win. What is the Nats' first win since a 2-1 win at the Mets? Now, two Friday nights ago, it had been a while. Nats get to 56 and 79 on the season. So you think about all of the things that went down at Nats Park on Saturday. Nats overcome that aforementioned 9 nothing deficit. We have a manager on crutches get ejected from a game. We have both Andrew Stevenson and Alcides Escobar homer over the course of the doubleheader. We have a guy named Josh Rogers put forth an admirable start in his Nats debut. Mark, this was quite the Labor Day Saturday, if you're a Nats fan. A lot to take in. I mean, this was an eventful day and night. <laughs> One of the more eventful ones. And let's be honest, this season has had a lot of eventful days to them. And this one, I think, is right up there. And man, if they had pulled off that first one down 9 nothing, if they had won and they were, as always, one hit away from doing it, 
that could have been a death blow to the Mets. I know the Mets are kind of hanging on for dear life at this point anyways. They had somehow pulled that off and swept the doubleheader. That could have put a real dent into their chances and I think would have really boosted everyone's spirits. But thankfully, for their sake, they came back and played a good game in the finale. Thanks to Josh Rogers, who knew? And thanks to Kyle Finnegan. That was a big-time save. You know, Not all saves are created equal. And after giving it up to Lindor in the first game and then coming back with a one-run lead to get Lindor, Baez, and Alonzo to cap off the evening, that is a big-time save for him. And I thought that was maybe the most important thing that happened all day, actually. That was an onion save, to be sure. Great job by Kyle Finnegan. Andres Machado getting a strikeout uh, with a lone batter he faced in that game. Bullpen getting the job done. Rodgers getting the job done. We'll get to him. But two big home runs for the Nats over the course of this doubleheader. And each homer coming from, like, the unlikeliest of people. It You know, like, just when you think you can't be surprised anymore by the Nationals this season, we get what we got on Saturday. So in this game one loss, the 11-9, nine-inning loss, Andrew Stevenson doesn't even start. He comes off the bench in the top of the fourth, and he ends up having a great game. Like, in what's supposed to be a seven-inning game, this guy, over the course of just a handful of innings, ended up having a game that most people would take over, you know, 14 innings with what he ended up doing. But in an ads three-run fourth, he draws a bases-loaded five-pitch walk. In an ads four-run sixth, he has a one-out single. And then in a Nationals two-run seventh, he has the game-tying two-out two-run homer to right field of Mets reliever Seth Lugo to tie the game at nine and complete the Nats comeback from a 9 nothing fourth inning deficit. This was just Stevenson's fourth homer of the season. He hit it pretty well when it projected 402 feet per stat cast. Now the pitch. Stevenson swings and drives it a deep right center field. This is way back. Pilar the wall looking up. But here you had Stevenson, right? Friday night, the flip, and then the eventual slapping of home plate uh, to score that dramatic run in the bottom of the ninth inning. And then in game two of this series, game one of the doubleheader, this guy was hitting out of his mind off the bench for the Nationals. I mean, that was a 24-hour period for Andrew Stevenson. That was something. And, you know, it's funny because we sort of forgot about him a little bit with Victor Robles being sent down and Lane Thomas emerging as the center fielder and Stevenson was down to AAA for a little while and they brought him back. It's not like he's playing a lot, but boy, for whatever reason, when he comes off the bench, he's electric. I don't know why he can't translate that into when he starts a game to do that consistently. But when he comes off the bench, he brings energy. He brings quality at bats. We know he runs the bases well. There is a spark plug there about him that I still think ultimately makes him a valuable member of this team moving forward, even if it is just as a pinch hitter and you know occasional outfielder, pinch runner, and all that kind of stuff. But good for him. I mean, he he plays the game so hard. I mean, he is all out all the time. I know teammates love that about him. They love seeing the mullet flying around the, underneath the helmet as he's rounding the bases. Good for him. Like I said, it hasn't been the best year for him. And, and he certainly has had his opportunities to prove that he deserves to play a little bit more. But maybe if this is just who he is, that's not such a bad thing if he ends up being a good quality bat and glove and runner off the bench. Yeah, I mean, I don't put Andrew Stevenson into that category of potential building blocks. I think we kind of know what he is. And you're right, he hasn't had a good season. He's actually had a worse offensive season than Robles has had. But you need fourth and fifth outfielders. And if he can provide value in that way, that's a good thing. Like, I don't think there's any shame in something like that. Now, Stevenson started game two of the doubleheader. He was an at starting left fielder and number six batter. 
Do you think that was the plan all along, or do you think that Davey did his Davey thing of, because Stevenson did so well in game one of the doubleheader, he gets the start in game two? There may have been a little bit of that going on. Yeah. Now, the only thing I'll say, like, Yadiel Hernandez at age 34 is maybe, you know, a little tougher for him to play both ends of a doubleheader. So that may have had a little something to do with it. Maybe it was part of the plan. But yeah, if Yadiel has a big first game and Stevenson doesn't, maybe that's not the lineup that we see in the nightcap. You know what? I'm okay with that. At this stage, nothing wrong with that. Play the hot hand, let him go out there. Now, he didn't have a good game in the night game, as it turned out. So maybe there is something about bringing him off the bench. He's a little more motivated or just more comfortable in that role. I don't know what it is. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a little bit of a reflection of the way that he's played here the last couple of days. I just find that so charming about Davey. That's how like my CYO head coaches used to set lineups in, in our Little League games. Like if you did well the previous game, you bat higher the next game. Like it was, it's just, you know, it's, uh, just go ahead and do that. So anyway, we love Davey though. And look, Davey, he got tossed from the game on crutches. Has that ever happened before? Can Elias look that up? A guy in the dugout on crutches gets tossed from the game and then he has to, what, I guess, crutch his way back to his office. I mean, how does that, how does that work? I just, I thought that was hysterical. They got tossed from the game and he can't really walk right now. That's the longest, slowest ejection walk up the dugout tunnel you ever have. And if you haven't been there before, there are a bunch of steps to get up once you get down from the dugout to make your way up to the clubhouse. I cannot imagine that was very easy for Davey to do that. I don't know that we are fully appreciating, like he's in some pain right now. He's in a soft cast. Once he gets to the dugout, he sits down, he puts his leg up, and he doesn't move for the entire game and still managed to get ejected. This is not easy on him physically, but he really wants to be out there and be engaged in this and not just sit back in the office and watch. I don't think I've ever seen an injured manager be ejected and have to deal with that. That is a long walk of shame back to the uh, clubhouse. All right, so Andrew Stevenson, an unlikely hero in game one. And then there was Alcides Escobar Saturday. And you could write like a book about everything that happened with Alcides on Saturday. So we'll take things sequentially here. Starting shortstop number two batter in each game. He, in the game one loss, comes through to the tune of a big two-run double and an RBI sack fly. But he also has two crucial errors in the game. He in the Nats three-run fourth has the one-out RBI sack fly. He in the Nationals four-run six has a one-out bases loaded two-run double to left field on a one-two pitch from Mets reliever Miguel Castro as, again, nobody gets dirtier hits than Alcides Escobar. Down in the count, it don't matter. The guy delivers, and he delivered in that spot. But he also, in the Mets four-run second, like just lost it from a fielding perspective. I mean, it just disappeared from the guy. And he had two big errors. He committed a fielding error on a Jeff McNeil grounder as Escobar failed to make a charging pick of the ball with his glove. And then Escobar committed another fielding error on a grounder by the next batter, Patrick Mazika, as Escobar failed in an attempted backhanded pick at a potential double play ball. Now the set of the pitch. Swing to ground ball left side. Escobar ranges to his right, drops this one, picks it up. They can make the throw to second, drop the ball again. And uh, Noah Syndergaard, who can never keep his mouth shut or his fingers quiet, ended up uh, putting out on social media some shade toward Alcides. People may remember this. There's heat between Syndergaard and Escobar going back to the 2015 World Series. Syndergaard famously threw a ball at uh, Escobar's head at one point in that series. Here comes Escobar. Syndergaard set to go. Mets fans love it. I don't think Moustakas did. Now that's announcing yourself. But then comes game two of the doubleheader, and Escobar is great offensively in that game. Two for three with a big two-run homer 
and a single. He has a single and then adds two runs first. And then in the bottom of the fifth, two out, two run homer to center field off the Mets starter Tyler McGill for a 4-1 Nats lead. That homer going a projected 400 feet for StatCast. Both Andrew Stevenson and Alcides Escobar hit 400-foot homers on Saturday. Raise your hand if you expected that. Almost to the exact same seat in the stands. It was crazy. They were right at the exact same spot. I don't even know where to begin with Escobar's day and night, but I want to mention real quick those two errors. Those were bad errors that for a guy of his experience, you just can't have, especially in succession like that. And it does repeat a pattern that we've seen here lately where one thing for the guys to play hard and to battle back and all that, but they're not playing a clean brand of baseball. They did in the nightcap, but the first two games of the series, not clean at all. And that is something I think is okay to get upset with. It's one thing not to get upset with the results of the game. You're going to live with some mistakes from the young guys, but the sloppiness, the poor execution, the you know bad base running, obviously bad defense, that stuff needs to go away, especially from a veteran. And you mentioned Cindergard. You know what he, I think it was Instagram, actually. He said, hit it to the shortstop, okay? Now, did you see what the Nationals Twitter account put out there after Escobar hit his homer in the nightcap? We hope anyone watching the game from their couch tonight enjoys this Alcides Escobar home run. So they were playing right along with Noah Syndergaard. And who knew? That's a six-year-old beef going back to the 2015 World Series. Like, Noah, really? This is all you have at this point to be focused on? But good for Alcides for turning it around after a really rough start to his day. He finished it strong. That was a big-time homer. Also singled and scored in the first inning. We've said everything we to say about it. Maybe they can do better and, and find another shortstop this winter. But... I don't think it's the end of the world if he comes back either as their shortstop or as a utility infielder. Uh, I do think he's making a positive uh, contribution to this team and a good influence on the young guys. I want to say something about Noah Syndergaard real quick. He is a perfect Mets player because he looks the part. He talks the part. He wants to get paid for the part. But there's one problem. He doesn't produce the part. He's not nearly as good as he thinks he is, okay? Now, he looks like a million bucks. You know, he's all jacked up and he's got the long hair and he calls himself Thor and all these things. But there's a little problem. He's not the dominant pitcher that he thinks he is. Look at his numbers. Look at his career, okay? He's not as great as he thinks he is. And and that, to me, is the Mets in a nutshell. Noah Syndergaard, in a nutshell, is the New York Mets. So I just want to put that out there. Uh, Alcides has nothing to be ashamed of with Syndergaard putting that out there like that. I mean, the errors were bad, but Alcides shoved it back in his face with what he ended up doing in that uh, game, too. So with some other guys who had interesting double letters, how about Luis Garcia, who's Ryan Sandberg all of a sudden? He's got four doubles in three games in this series. I mean, Luis Garcia, who has not been that good of a hitter, all of a sudden this guy's smacking doubles all over the place, and he has a double in each of the games on Saturday. He's making them count. When he gets them right, you know, (laughs) and I guess there's something to be said for that. As we've said from the beginning, there's a lot of flash there, both at the plate and in the field. The key here is the consistency. He's got the mistakes both at the plate and in the field and on the bases have got to be cut down significantly so that the flashy plays are the ones that we remember. And he's not giving us any negative flashy plays to have to focus on instead. But good for him that he's hitting that. But there's still (laughs) with him. You notice they were trying to pick him off again from second base in this game. The Mets clearly know this is someone they think they could take advantage of his inexperience. And you get a reputation like that, and it's going to stick. So he definitely needs to clean up that kind of stuff. There's been some excitement, obviously, from him. Good for him for driving the ball and getting some things done. But you know what? He also came up in a big spot, a couple big spots, late in the first game that could have finished the rally and given the Nats the win. 
he had the automatic runner on second base, couldn't advance him. He had the, wouldn't have been the tying run yet. Uh, they were down by two in the seventh, but runner in scoring position. And he hit that like one foot grounder in front of the plate and then didn't even really run at first to first. So this is what I'm talking about. The good stuff is good, but he's got to eliminate the negative stuff and start being more consistent in what he does so that it, there aren't those two extremes from him, it seems like, every night. Yeah, I mean, at least he is giving you a pulse, though, offensively now. Two for five with a double and a single in game one of the doubleheader. One for two with a double in game two of the doubleheader. And he made a nice defensive play in game two of the doubleheader. Uh, this was for the second out in the top of the six. He's on his knees, and he makes a really good backhanded snatch of a short hop grounder off the bat of Jeff McNeil and throws the first for the out. Like we've said with Luis, he can make the really good defensive plays, but, you know, as we've pointed out, the routine ones can at times be an issue. And the pitch is hit in the air to left field. Nemo back on this one to the warning track on the run. It's over his head and it's gone. It's a home run for Victor Robles. He is homered against Syndergaard for the second time this season. Both of his home runs against Syndergaard. There's the Nationals' first hit. It leaves the ballpark on the first pitch in the top of the sixth inning. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you. And that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call them today at 202 486 3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The wine of the pitch by McGill on the way. Fastball, strike three called. Heboom upset again and had some choice words, and he has just been ejected from the game by home plate umpire Bill Welke. He was mad about being called out on strikes in the fourth inning. Tim Bogar coming out of the Nationals' dugout now. A guy who we tend to associate with Luis Garcia, Carter Keeboom, had an interesting doubleheader as well. Bunch of hits for him. Uh, he ends up having four hits over the course of the two games. The nine-inning loss in game one, three for five with a double and two singles, uh, including in the Nats' three-run fourth, a full-count single, and in the Nats' two-run seventh, a one-out first-pitch ground rule double. Then in the uh, win and the nightcap there, the evening cap, whatever you want to call it. He has a really impressive RBI single, I thought, Keeboom, and that Nationals two-run first inning, a one-out opposite field RBI single through the right side of the infield on an 0-2 pitch. Now, this was not a particularly well-struck ball, but, you know, that classic thing of you're down 0-2, you just sort of go with the pitch, you put it the opposite way, you make contact, and you're able to find a way to get a hit in that plate appearance. I thought that was a really good piece of hitting by Keyboom. Now, he did strike out twice in the game on Saturday evening, and he also got tossed, and I got a kick out of this. So, Keyboom was not happy with the strike zone that was uh, utilized by the home plate umpire, Bill Welke. So, Keyboom strikes out looking for the second out in the bottom of the six. He gets ejected for arguing balls and strikes, but this was the best part. So, he clearly showed up Welke. Keyboom strikes out, is walking toward the dugout. He throws up his left arm. He then gets tossed, which you knew he would, and then Keyboom goes back at Welke, and he keeps asking him, for what? For what? He said that multiple times. You're like, for what? Whether you think Welke was right or wrong on the call, you throw your arm up like that. When you're demonstrative like that, you almost always get tossed, especially if you're Carter Keyboom. Like, if that's Juan Soto, maybe not. If that's Carter Keyboom, he's going to get tossed. So I liked him playing the... Uh, the innocent role there, but he did have multiple hits on Saturday, so that was good from Carter. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was quite an ejection for Carter, and I agree. Like it was clear that he was being ejected, and you know the thing is, part of you is like Carter. This is a bad time to get ejected. You're up one run going into the final inning. Now I'm going to say something here. <laughs> that was my first thought. My second thought was Adrian Sanchez isn't such a bad third baseman in a one run game. Now, if the game was to continue beyond that, maybe that's not such a good thing. But for one inning, if you just need him for defense, that may not be the worst thing. We've seen Carter have a few struggles at third base, so maybe it all worked out in the end like that. But there's a time and a place for it. And I know that Keeboom was upset at pitches in the previous at-bat and, and all that, but how could he not realize that what he did warranted an ejection? Of course it did. Yeah, I mean, you... Arguing balls and strikes is grounds for ejection, but when you argue balls and strikes and you do something like throw up your arm so that everyone sees that you're arguing balls and strikes, then forget about it. You're going to get tossed. And he's, I mean, he's got to know that. So, and it was interesting too, because Tim Bogar came out, Bogar talked to Welke for a little bit. Maybe Bogar pitched Keyboom's case, but Bogar was not like screaming at Welke or anything like that. It was almost like Bogar was telling Welke, Hey, he's young, he'll learn, or something like that. You kind of got that sense anyway, <laughs> right. uh, watching that. What other Nationals position player to note? Lane Thomas. I mean, Lane Thomas continues to deliver. I saw you note on Twitter, it was like something along the lines of Lane Thomas is doing Lane Thomas things. And 
we're kind of getting to that point. The wind by McGill, the pitch. Swung on, hit high in the air to deep center field. Pilar moving back, way back, warning track on the wall. It is gone. Goodbye. Lane Thomas. It's not this surprising thing anymore that this guy keeps producing, but I feel like we need to keep noting this. He does keep producing. So he is the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter game in, game out. And like every game, he's doing something of note in the nine inning loss in game one of the doubleheader, two for four with two singles and an RBI sack fly. Now, one of the singles, this came in the four run six. It's a one out infield single on a one two pitch. So good job by Lane of putting the ball in play. But this was the play on which Francisco Lindor failed to catch a pretty decent feed, I thought, from Javier Baez, who made a really acrobatic play, diving backhanded stab of a grounder up the middle, then the glove tossed to Lindor, and Lindor, who can be kind of casual as a shortstop, just didn't catch the baseball, but Thomas got a hit on that. But then in game two, the doubleheader, the win, big homer for Lane Thomas. Two run first, a leadoff homer to center field on another one-two pitch. This one from the Mets starter, Tyler McGill, 402 projected feed for StatCast. Another day, more productivity from Lane Thomas. I agree with you on the uh, that play in the first game. And like we talk about the Nats being sloppy in the field. Oh my God, were the Mets sloppy in the field for a oh. stretch there that very much helped the Nats get back in that game. Let's be honest about how that went about. Their infield just kind of fell apart there for about an inning or two. But good on Lane Thomas for, like you said, putting the bat on the ball. And just, he keeps finding ways to contribute. It's not always the same way. Sometimes it's contact to hit. Sometimes walk. Sometimes power. Hitting for home runs. Sometimes on the bases. Sometimes it's in the field. I continue to say, I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know that we can believe that this is who he truly is over the long haul. But with each passing day, the more that he does it, the more you say, okay, we have a body of work to go off of here. And so, to think that maybe there could be something here that we didn't really expect. So he has gotten a golden opportunity and he is absolutely making the most of it. And if there was any thought to, well, we'll send Victor Robles down and maybe within a week we'll bring him back up. Yeah, it's not happening. It's not happening. Not as long as Lane is continuing to do this. He's going to be the man in center field and leading off. It's amazing the twists and turns that a baseball season will take. Imagine someone telling you in April, Lane Thomas will be certifiably the Nats every game center fielder and leadoff batter come September. You'd have been like, who, what? But that's where we are. I mean, like nobody bats an eye at this point. Well, when it came to the Nats starting pitching on Saturday, there was the pretty good Josh Rogers, and we'll get to him. But there also was the pretty bad, and that was Eric Fetty. And I, I think Fetty's outing by far is the number one negative from this day. Eric Fetty in the 11-9-9 inning loss in game one of the doubleheader, seven runs, four earned in three innings. It is true that those two Alcides Escobar errors in that top of the second inning did not help, and they did not help. But it's also true that Eric Fetty struggled again. Fetty to the belt and to the plate. Swing a line drive, base hit center field. That'll bring in Baez from third. He'll jog home. RBI single Patrick Mazika. Mets lead seven to nothing. Gives up two runs in the top of the first, due in large part to beginning the game by allowing three consecutive singles. Gives up four runs, one earned in the top of the second. Escobar, yes, to two errors, but also, yes, was Fetty giving up a leadoff homer to Javier Baez to center field, 406 projected feet per stat cast. And then top of the third comes another run, leadoff double by Baez on an 0-2 pitch, followed by a one-out RBI single by Patrick Mazika. That game that Fetty had a few starts ago where he looked so good and we're like, wow, Eric Fetty, you know, maybe he's uh, kind of riding himself off being rocky for a while. No, he's been bad now over these last few outings. 
And I go back to him being on the 10-day I.O. with a left oblique strain. This is now 12 starts since coming off the I.L. 41 earned runs in 55 and two-thirds innings. A 6.63 ERA over his last 12 starts. His season has completely plummeted. He's got an ERA of 5.27 over 23 starts. And you know, Mark, I think about Fetty, and it's like he's not going anywhere this season. But when we talk about next season, I don't think anything should be promised to Eric Fetty. And I don't think internally the organization should be counting on him to be in the rotation in any way. I mean, at some point, you got to sort of decide on a guy. I feel like as this season goes on, maybe just maybe he's making the decision for the organization with how much his season has just gotten off the rails here over these last few months. Yeah, I don't disagree with you on that. And I think, as we've said with so many of the starting pitchers, if they had better alternatives, they might have already made a move by now. And in years past, he absolutely would have lost his spot in the rotation. But where they're at right now, they don't really have a choice but to keep putting him out there and hoping that he can put it together. Now, maybe by next uh, spring, it's a different story and they have five better options than him in which case he's out of a job because he's going to be out of options. He already is out of options. That's why they can't send him down anyways at the moment. So if I'm Eric Fetty and you've got, what, about four or five more starts before the season is over, I'm putting everything I have into those starts to try to finish on a high note because you may be pitching for your job now at this point. Now, in this game, yes, the defense didn't help him. Yes, there were some perfectly placed ground ball singles by the Mets. But at the end of the day, nine hits allowed in three innings, and he threw 80 pitches in three innings. In a short game, like, you're hoping, hey, Eric, go give us just five innings today. That's enough, and we can go to the bullpen and call it a day after seven. And instead, by getting knocked out after three, he forces the usage of the bullpen early. Then it turns into an extra inning game, and now all of a sudden, they've had to use six innings, four relievers for six innings in the opener of a doubleheader in which you're starting Josh Rogers and you don't know what you're going to get from him, the nightcap. Now it all worked out in the end, but talk about trying to lead a rotation and give your team what they need. They needed so much more from Eric Fetty today. You know, I was thinking about this with Fetty's outing. Victor Robles has regressed. Patrick Corbin has regressed. Eric Fetty has regressed. You could argue Joe Ross has regressed. You know, this is very troubling with the Nationals as an organization. We talk about the draft picks not working out and things going on in the minors. What is going on at the major league level where all of these guys over the last, say, two, three years, however you want to term it, they're getting worse. They're not getting better. And I don't pretend to know the ins and outs with each guy in terms of why he has fallen off. But all of these guys are getting worse. The Nationals have got to look themselves in the mirror. What are they doing from a development standpoint? What are they doing from a coaching standpoint that all of these people are getting worse? And I want to ask you this question. Who has gotten better? If you have to list Nationals players who've gotten appreciably better in recent years, who's on that list exactly? Like, I thought about, okay, like Josh Bell has been better defensively than he's been in the past. So maybe the Nats deserve credit for something like that. Juan Soto has demonstrated defensive improvement. Maybe the Nats deserve some credit for that. But by and large, I see a lot of guys getting worse. And I can't come up with obvious people who've gotten better. And that's an indictment of the organization, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement to make. And it's a short list of people who you could make that case for who have gotten better. And I'm even trying to think like it's mostly the newer guys. It's not even like the guys who have been in the system for a while. You could say Keyboom, there's been some improvement this year, but I mean, that's not like he's taken off and we're finally seeing the real Carter Keyboom. 
you know, I'll add another name to the list of someone who's regressed this year, and that's Tanner Rainey, who we had very high hopes for coming into the season. And this has turned into kind of a lost year for him. Maybe you could say Finnegan as someone who showed up last year as brand new to the organization and you thought, well, he might make the bullpen and be one of the last men in it. And all of a sudden he's become the closer. Some of that's from because of his performance and some of that is because of the circumstances that has happened. But yeah, I think that is a fair statement to make that you have not seen improvement from the homegrown guys that you would have hoped to have seen by now. And that's one of the reasons that they're in the position that they're in. You can't sustain things forever. Guys are going to get older. They're going to become free agents. You have to supplant them with the next generation. And as we've talked about all summer long, for the last several years, they have not positioned themselves to be able to supplant the guys who are going to be getting older and departing. That has been a major problem and a huge reason why they are now in this rebuilding project and need to go outside the organization to rebuild. It's not like we're talking about a ton of in-house prospects who are going to be the future. It's a lot of people that they just got in trades and probably will, you know, just got in a draft and more players that they're probably going to acquire this winter and into next year that are going to be the foundation for the next generation. Yeah, I really think there needs to be a lot of organizational self-reflection this offseason because you can't just blame things on the players and the injuries to the players, like say with Steven Strasburg. The Nats have to look themselves in the mirror. What is going on with us? That people are getting worse, that our farm system was this bad to begin with, etc that chat is sponsored by silver brands brewing company located in downtown silver spring only a one minute walk from the silver spring metro station silver branch is a perfect jumping off point to metro down to the game park at the cameron street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before metroing down you can also get silver branch beer at nationals park Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Hey, Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington Nationals stars today. Visit FredNats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. Power pitcher against a power hitter. Right-hander against right-hander. He comes set. Finnegan kicks. Here's the pitch. Strike three called. A fastball at the knees. And a curly W's in the books. An absolutely perfect pitch. Locks up Pete Alonso. And Finnegan with his second strikeout of the inning preserves the first win for Josh Rogers in the Major League since 2018. It'll be his second big league win. 
with the Nats not having many options, that led us to Josh Rogers being the national starting pitcher in game two of the doubleheader. But as we have seen with our guy, the secret weapon, Paolo Espino, as we saw on Friday night with Sean Nolan, there is something to, you know, the guy who has no business pitching for the Nationals, pitching fairly well, at least early on in his tenure. And Josh Rogers did a nice job on Saturday night. Let's give him full credit. The final line, I don't think, is reflective of the outing. Three runs in five and two-thirds innings. He only gave up four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles. He did issue three walks, but he also had five strikeouts. He threw 57 strikes versus 30 balls on 87 pitches. He had not pitched in a Major League regular season game since 2019. He looked like he was having the time of his life out there. So there was like that aspect to it of he was just so likable and rootable. You know, I know he wasn't a Cy Young candidate, but I thought he did a nice job, all things considered. Oh, 100%. I mean, you take that and you run with it. And I agree, it was better than the final line because that really was a product of the two-run homer to Kevin Pillar in the sixth. When, you know, two pitches before it, the trainer came out and you watch it, like, what happened? It looked like he might have landed a little awkwardly. And Davey would only say afterwards that he cramped up, something happened like that. I don't know what exactly it was. And a couple pitches later, he gives the home run. And next thing you know, his night is over. But boy, what a a breath of fresh air that was, I thought. He pitched with rhythm, (laughs) like literally with rhythm, kept the guys behind him on their toes. He threw strikes and he played with an enthusiasm that you just haven't seen all that often. And look, he admitted afterwards, he didn't know if he was ever going to get another chance again. This means everything. Uh, Just this whole organization just giving uh, giving me a shot and giving me an opportunity to pitch back in the big leagues. Uh, It means everything. Uh, I've worked super hard over the past two years to, to get here. Uh, I've overcome a lot of adversity. I mean, you get dropped by the Orioles AAA team in midseason, no offense, but that doesn't bode real well for your future. And the Nationals, who just desperately needed arms at AAA at that stage, they gave him a shot. He pitched pretty well for them, 3.7 ERA, I think it was, in 14 games. And this was just this weird quirk, and I don't know if it had anything to do with why they called him up for this game. I think it had more to do with the fact that he lined up, his starts lined up for him to be available. But three of his previous five starts in Rochester were against the Syracuse Mets. That's New York's AAA team. And in those three starts against them, he threw 18 scoreless innings. I know that's a different team, but it's still the same organization. And maybe there's a little bit of familiarity and maybe faced at least a couple of the guys who are up here with the Mets now. I thought that was interesting that of all the scenarios that he had had success against the Mets organization, now gets to face their big leaguers and almost did just as well in this one. And I'll tell you what, I think we're going to see him again. You know, they haven't announced anything yet, but I think they're going to find a way to keep him around for a little while longer. He has earned at least one more start, if not more than that. Well, they don't have an off day until, a scheduled off day anyway, until Thursday, September 16th. So they may well need to lean on him at some point in some way here, uh, at least one more time uh, over the course of uh, the rest of the season. So with the Nats bullpen, we brought him up earlier, Kyle Finnegan, you know, kind of like Alcides Escobar, there were the highs and there were the lows on Saturday. Uh, the low for Kyle came in the 11-9-9 inning loss in game one as the Nationals, it feels like this has happened quite a bit this season in extra innings where they don't do well in extra inning games. Now, that's not necessarily indicative of anything because the Dodgers have a bad extra innings record on the year. And for a while, the Nats were doing just fine from a bullpen standpoint in game one in the extra innings, quote unquote, because this ended up being a nine inning game. But Alberto Baldonado looked really good. We can talk about him in a bit. But Finnegan, top of the ninth game one, gives up two runs, one earned, gives up the leadoff two-run homer to Francisco Lindor for the 11-9 lead. But as you said, in the game to win, the 4-3-7 inning victory, 
Man, Finnegan coming up big. Scoreless bottom of the seven, two strikeouts. He strikes out Javier Baez on five pitches for the second out. Strikes out Pete Alonso looking on four pitches for the final out. Man, Alonso, he looked like he and Carter Keyboom were going to have a beer after the game because Alonso was not happy with the home plate umpiring there in that plate appearance. But really good bounce back for Kyle Finnegan off giving up the homer to Lindor in game one. Yeah, so like I said, not all saves are created equal. And that to me was a big time save given who he was facing with a one-run deficit, a team that has kind of owned him a little bit over the summer. Remember, he gave up the walk-off homer to Pete Alonso in August. That's before we even got to the Lindor homer in game one of this doubleheader. So he's got to go stare down those same hitters again and execute his pitches, which he absolutely did. That final strike to Alonso, I don't care what Pete says, that was a perfect pitch. He put that right in on the knees, could not have placed it better, and a nice job by Riley Adams to catch it as well and frame it well. So You know, it's funny. Sometimes you think, okay, well, he was awful in game one, so maybe we don't want to put him back out there in game two. And here's like the opposite of how we've talked about Davey with his lineup usage. When it comes to a reliever, he wants to put him back out there because he wants to show some confidence in him. And even though Finnegan threw 23 pitches in the first game, even though he's just back from paternity leave and hadn't thrown in several days, he decided to let him go back out there for the seventh and final inning. And it was the right move and it paid off. And that's a confidence builder for Kyle Finnegan to know that he can get those hitters out in a one-run game and an important game for the Mets after what had happened earlier in the day. I think that's big for Kyle Finnegan. Yeah, you know, it's hard to know with Finnegan if we're building towards something or if he's just like most other relievers, which is what happens this year means nothing for what happens next year because so many of these guys are so year to year. But if you sort of take into the uh, reality of, okay, this year does matter and is indicative of the future, he's doing some good things here. He's seven for nine on saves. He's got an ERA at 283. He's averaging more than a strikeout per inning. The issue is he puts guys on base. He's got a 143 whip. He issues walks. You know, he doesn't blow you away. So, like, there are things you look at, you say, I don't know, is this guy really, like, quote-unquote closer, an ace reliever? But he's piling up these experiences, and he's got some chops to him. And we saw those chops on display with that bounce back on Saturday, struggling in game one, doing well in game two. And to your point, I think there is value in that, that we know that being a closer, a late innings reliever, there is a mental aspect to it. Like, there is a toughness to it. And I think maybe for some guys, it's something that comes with time and experience, and he's accumulating those experiences. So that is good. What'd you think about our guy, Baldonado, though? I thought that was awesome. What he did, two perfect innings with a couple of strikeouts in the game one loss. Struck out Jonathan Villar on seven pitches in the top of the eighth with the automatic runner on second base. And I I know old Baldy did then throw a wild pitch, but he got out of the inning unscathed. It's obviously, you know, a short time he's been at the major league level. But here's another guy, right? Waited a long time to make his major league debut, having fun with it, and so far doing a pretty good job. Yeah, he's a big boy out there. He's got some presence on the mound. We talked about this before. Rizzo has a thing for big relievers. You know, tall guys, wide guys, tall and wide guys. He likes that. Guys who throw hard, obviously. And it's a small sample. It's only two games so far. But I like what I've seen from Baldonado. He goes right after you. He remembers struck out Bryce Harper in his major league debut in a big spot and comes back here and throws two innings. And I was a little surprised they brought him back in the eighth inning, which is now extra innings. And you're putting him out there with a runner already on second base and nobody out in the eighth. That's a different kind of uh, scenario. This isn't just your regular relief appearance. You're you are under immense pressure right from the get-go because guy hit, puts the bat on the ball and finds a hole, and all of a sudden you can lose the game on that. So good for him for doing that, and um, I'm intrigued 
I'm intrigued. I don't know what they have from here in a 28-year-old rookie who's been around the block, but I'm intrigued enough to say I want to see more of him. Well, you know, by 2021 national standards, a 28-year-old rookie is young. I mean, that's, you know, that's <laughs> nothing, okay? We got Yadiel in his 30s. We got Paolo in his 30s. You know, 28 years old, pff, come on. That's like uh, Mel Ott when he was 18 and playing in the majors. Wander Suero, one more thing here. <laughs> I mean, look, Suero, I don't know what happened to him at AAA. I really don't, but he's gotten worse, okay? Two runs and two innings in game one of the doubleheader. Both runs coming at the top of the fourth. Gives up a leadoff single to Lindor. Then gives up a one-out, two-run homer to Michael Conforto to right field for a 9-0 Mets lead that, yes, the Nats would overcome, but Suero does not seem to be in a good place. Like, at least before, it was 50-50. When he was on, he was good. When he wasn't on, he wasn't good. Right now, he just doesn't seem to be on. Just, he's off. Something's not right with him. You want some bad numbers? Hide the women and children for this one. Wander Suero, in his last five major league appearances, has given up multiple runs each time, Okay. This goes back to July 29th. Now, in between that, he was sent down to Rochester. And in seven and a third innings at AAA, he gave up 10 earned runs. So you're talking about a more than a month now at two different levels in which he hasn't even come close to having like any quality outings. Something's wrong there, clearly. It's not doing him or the team any good to put him out there. I mean, that was kind of waving of the white flag when he went out there and they put him back out for a second inning in what was now a nine, nothing game. Now he, he had a one, two, three inning. So, you know, good for him for bouncing back from that. But if not for the comeback, we'd be talking much more about Wander Suero and what a mess he is right now. And I don't know what that means for him moving forward. Suppose they'll put him back on the mound here at some point, but he was hit hard at AAA and now he's getting hit hard again in his return to the big leagues. Well, we have game four of the series, which will not end until Monday. Remember, this is a five-game series. So game four will be Sunday afternoon at 105. Intriguing pitching matchup, Josiah Gray versus Taiwan Walker. And for the first time since the Nationals acquired Josiah Gray, we must ask the question, will Josiah Gray bounce back? He's coming off what was easily the worst of his starts for the Nationals so far. He's made six starts. First five starts had an ERA of 289. His last start, though, did not go well. 7-4 loss to Philadelphia at Nationals Park this past Monday night. Six runs in four innings. He gave up seven hits, a homer, a triple, and five singles. Issued three walks, had four strikeouts, but he gave up three runs in the top of the first. He gave up three runs in the top of the third inning. We know, he, you know, he's not perfect. And, you know, there was a little bit of bad luck involved in that game. That was a game in which uh, you had the bases loaded, three-run triple by Ronald Torres. Yadiel Hernandez misplayed the ball. So, you know, there was some of that going on. But Josiah was not very good in that game. You know, the Mets are a hard team to figure out because they have talent, but they are a mess right now. Everybody sees it. I would think this is actually a pretty good spot for Josiah Gray to bounce back. I would be surprised if he doesn't. The only thing I'd be worried about, as we've known, he tends to give up home runs. And the Mets are so wildly erratic that they could, half their hitters, it feels like, are going to strike out on pitches five feet out of the zone, or they're going to hit a home run. It's like all or nothing with them. So that would be the only thing I'd be a little bit worried about. But I think it's an important start, like you said, for him to, to bounce back, show that he can do that show that the last one was a mirage and not the trend where he's going. I presume that K-Bear Ruiz is going to be catching him for the second straight time. That pairing didn't work out so great in uh, K-Bear's debut against the Phillies. Let's see how they work together in their second time as a battery. And yeah, I think it's kind of a big one for him. He's only got so many starts here before the season is over. He'll have a few of them against some quality opponents. This might be actually one of the better ones that he ends up facing. So let's see how he handles it. I think I've asked you this before, but just to double check, 
the belief is that there isn't like an innings limit or anything on Josiah, right? That he'll pitch the rest of the season, or are we not sure about that? I haven't been told that they have any limit on him. Now, within each start, they are, you've noticed, like kind of holding him back, and he's not really getting towards 100 pitches because he was injured earlier in the year and just hasn't, you know, been a pitcher for that long. But I think because of the injury earlier on, he doesn't have a lot of innings this year total. So they're okay and comfortable with him finishing it out. But, you know, unless he's super efficient, I don't see him going more than six. And even that is kind of pushing it at times. So I don't, I don't think we're going to see any long starts from him, but I think they want him back out there every five days as long as they aren't seeing any evidence of fatigue or any, any arm issues. Well, the radio version of the NatSat podcast will be in full effect Sunday morning at 9 on 1061 ESPN in Richmond. So if you're in the Richmond area, give a listen on 1061 ESPN. And even if you're not in the Richmond area, you can listen online, ESPNRichmond.com. That's Sunday morning at 9. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show. The email address is NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also send us a tale of October 2019 as well. Just record yourself speaking in your smartphone. Email the file to us again, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt at natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you with this tale of October 2019 from Rich Park. In Sangdo, South Korea, Rich Park is the same guy, some of you who are loyal listeners will remember this, who offered to go to the DMZ and to perhaps engage North Korea in trying to spread the gospel that is the Nats Chat podcast. We don't believe that Rich actually took those steps into the demilitarized zone, but Rich has this tale from October 2019 to share with us, and we thank him for it. Hey guys, Rich here. So I'm a former season ticket holder, but been living in South Korea since 2013. Due to the time difference, my typical Nats viewing times is between 8 to 11 a.m. So without using my work laptop, I usually have my Korean cell phone have the MLB app on game day mode with Charlie and Dave's audio feed on my headphones. And if on the occasion I needed to see the play, I would have my U.S. phone via hotspot on the MLB.tv feed. Well, cut to NLDS Game 5, 10th inning. I'm at my desk during my lunch break. The app has Kendrick's plate appearance as in play, comma, runs, with the letter S between two parentheses. Me, I reply with a small fist pump. But if you already know about the game day mode, it takes a while to fully detail the play. So I didn't know what exactly he did to break the tie or how many runs he batted in. So I waited for the delayed text. But instead, I hear Dave's grand slam home run call. And I respond immediately, jumping out of my chair with a loud cheer, as some of my coworkers were trying to figure out what the heck was going on with me. Finally, knowing that I was going to get the delayed Fox video feed, I quickly uncorded my two phones and ran to the hallway as fast as I can so I could watch the play. So now fast forward to Game 7 of the World Series. This time I decided to find a place that will show the game. Thankfully, there was a restaurant nearby work that already had the game airing in one of the sports channels. So I was able to watch the second half without anyone looking at me weird as I cheered on. Only that when the game aired in Korea, it was October 31st. And I was dressed up in my homemade Fat Thor costume from Avengers Endgame. Side note. In the U.S., it's probably fair to say that only 10% of adults were brave enough to actually dress up in their Halloween costume to work. Well, I'm pretty sure I was the only adult in the entire country of Korea who dressed up that day. So regardless, people were still staring at me for different reasons. But I didn't care once I heard that loud metal foul pole clang that us Nats fans will remember forever. Anyways, you know the rest. Now Hudson coming set. The right-hander kicks and delivers. Swing and a miss! He struck him out with a high fastball on three pitches. 
One more out to go. The last out in the wild card game was made in center field. The last out in the DS in center field. The last out in the LCS in center field. Is there get one ready, more for get Victor, ready, Robles. Victor Robles? <laughs> They're one out away.